From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, hydroxychloroquine screening. But even one or two clear-cut spots in that parafoveal zone, take them seriously. First this. This year's ASCRS annual symposium was great. I learned a lot that I'm applying to my practice right now. If I have any complaint, it's that I couldn't get to all the sessions I wanted to because some of them overlapped. That's why I'm so excited about the new ASCRS Media Center. More than 1,300 sessions from that meeting are now available through this great new resource. See what you missed or revisit the most interesting sessions. The Media Center is free to all meeting attendees. Stay tuned after the podcast for more information. Hydroxychloroquine, or Plaquenil, is an excellent medication that is generally well-tolerated. Ophthalmic complications are infrequent, but as we all know, these can be very serious. Detection is the name of the game since early cessation of Plaquenil is important. As our diagnostic technology has advanced, our ability to detect early hydroxychloroquine maculopathy has improved, and as this technology has advanced, the recommendations for Plaquenil screening have evolved. Michael Marmer is an author of these recommendations, and I'm happy to have him as my guest today to elucidate Plaquenil screening for us. Mike, you had a recent editorial in the AGO uh, dealing with the some of the revised guidelines for hydroxychloroquine toxicity follow-up. Before we get to the current guidelines, can I ask you to discuss the, the previous Academy uh, guidelines from 2002 and maybe even touch on what the standard of care was before those 2002 guidelines? Sure. Um, there really was no good standard of care prior to the first guidelines, which is why we, why we got a committee together to, uh, to, to write them. There was a published literature that this uh, toxicity uh, existed. Uh, people advocated Amsler grids, color vision testing, fields of various types, um, fundus exam, angiography. There was really no clear, um, clear standard of care, and that was one of the... Uh, um, one of the problems. Uh, the first guidelines that were written in, in uh, uh, 2002 were kind of at the boundary between some of the modern techniques uh, like um, multifocal ERG and uh, OCT, which was still at that time in sort of the time domain uh, uh, world, um, and, and these older uh, older ways of looking at uh, retinal disease. And we tried to use uh, newer knowledge about toxicity, the fact that OCT could begin to see thinning and uh, parafoveal damage and to provide some sort of a codification of uh, uh, how, to, uh, how to go at the, at the disease. Can I get you to just briefly go over what the 2002 guidelines are and then maybe what the current guidelines are, the, the 2011 AO guidelines. 
we had we had allowed Amsler Grid because uh, some members of our committee were still using it and felt they were pretty good. But as years the years went by and we talked to more and more uh, skilled practitioners who see this disease, it, it became pretty clear that the Amsler Grid is just not a very reliable uh, way of, of documenting fields. It's very good, for example, at, at showing distortion from age-related macular degeneration, but it's uh, very, it, it's not very good at showing scotomas. People don't, people don't always recognize uh, blind spots unless they're extremely careful and the ophthalmologist is extremely good at explaining it. And in the real world, that's not the state of affairs. Color vision testing was an old saw, uh, but again, it's a very non-specific test that just doesn't uh, doesn't really uh, uh, have any any specificity for this particular toxicity. The new guidelines take this information into account and uh, bring it up to date in several respects. We want to emphasize, which is very important, that. This drug is not absorbed in fatty tissues, and thus the recommendations, the standard recommendation of 6.5 milligrams per kilogram as a, as a uh, upper daily dose, is really based on ideal weight. Um, you could say lean weight if you wanted to be very academic about it, but lean weight is very difficult to calculate, requires body surface area and a variety of things, and there's some very simple formulas for ideal weight, which uh, which I'll go over a little while later, I hope, that uh, should make it easy for anyone to calculate in just a minute uh, what a proper dose would be. We wanted to bring people into the new era of OCT and multifocal ERG and autofluorescence. Even if every lab doesn't have these tests, uh, all ophthalmologists should be aware that they exist, that they can be there as a backup when they have a puzzling case and uh, that we shouldn't be constrained to um, old-fashioned ways of uh, 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 evaluating patients. Uh, even that new set of guidelines, uh, probably in a couple of years, uh, with some new data that I'm working on. But the, the, the uh, current guidelines, the, the 2011 guidelines, call for automated uh, 10-2 uh, visual testing. Do, do, does it does it specify red red stimulus testing? Uh, the guidelines specified white, uh, simply because white testing is more prevalent uh, around the world, and we were just sort of thinking let's let's advise the default and not get into it. I got a flood of emails saying, uh, "Oh, red is supposed to be more sensitive." Are you saying that we can't do red? Right, which is actually fascinating because it's a bit of an old saw, but there's, there's really zero literature ever published on comparing red and white fields, uh, except a very old paper uh, going back to the 80s on hydroxychloroquine. Well, uh, I got together with a couple of colleagues, and we did look at some patients with both red and white fields and actually published a paper that uh, just uh, uh, came out a year ago, uh, uh, comparing red and white fields, and the bottom line is you can really do either as long as you're good at reading them. Red is a little more sensitive. It'll show sometimes a more clear-cut uh, ring scotoma where it's a little bit iffy in the white, but it also is, is a lot noisier. It's, uh, it, it's not as uh, uh, specific. 
Um, so personally, I prefer, and this is key, I prefer the pattern deviation uh, plots, the pattern deviation diagrams in the standard white 10-2 CETA fields because they're, they're statistical. When they're abnormal, they really mean something. Uh, but two of my co-authors on that paper um, now like doing red fields. One of the other recommendations is for some objective testing, either right. in the form of, um, of fundus autofluorescence, of OCT, or of multifocal ERG. Right. Right. And, and those can be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt, which is, in a sense, why I wrote the editorial, trying to put the recommendations into perspective. You know, when a committee and a society writes recommendations, they have to write them in a fairly, fairly rigid, formal way. You just can't account for all of the, all of the differences in patients and doctor skills and judgment and so on. Um, the most sensitive tests probably are a good quality field, and don't let me forget to come back to that with you. Most fields are not read well, but. A good quality field is very sensitive if it's the right kind and done well. And the newer high quality spectral density OCT tests that are widely available now in virtually every retina specialist and even a certain number of general clinics now are also very high sensitivity and give you very critical early uh, documentation that the retina is beginning to thin in the parafovea, just, out, just outside the foveal center. The objective test gives you some confirmation and some balance against the fact that fields are a very variable subjective test. Some people are good field takers and some don't. While we were working on this field study, I, I did a red field test on myself and fell asleep three times. <laughs> and I was trying. <laughs> um, so the objective tests add something. The OCT is the most readily available, most convenient, and basically good field testing and OCTs, ideally every annual visit, but certainly periodically, are a good sound basis for screening. Autofluorescence is probably not as sensitive or reliable, but for a retina specialist, it's, 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 it's there in the office and can be an added piece of information. Multifocal ERG has a very special place. It's basically an objective field test. It lets you record from the retina um, focally all around the posterior pole and get electrical signals that correspond, in essence, to the visual field. So somebody who's an unreliable field taker or you're not quite sure if you should take the field seriously, um, the multifocal ERG gives you another objective test that may tip you over in, into saying, gee, this patient's really okay, and we can watch them, or gee, there's clearly parafovial damage. Now, this test is, is not widely available. It's, it's in most, um, most teaching medical centers, um, and it has to be done done well, which some centers, I must say, don't do, in which case it's not, not worth a great deal. 
But if it's done well by experienced people, it's a very good test and a very important adjunct for those people where you're not sure whether you're trying to decide what's going on. And it's something I would not do it as a baseline. I don't do it routinely, but I do it periodically when I have someone with a questionable situation or someone that's been on the drug so long, like 20 years, that they're just in a very high-risk category, and I'd like to have as much baseline data on them as I, as I possibly can. So let's let's circle back to uh, fields and to and to reading fields. One of the uh, points that that you that you make is is that the deficit that we're looking for in the field that's associated with with plaquenil is typically in a very specific part of the field. Can I get you to to flesh that out a little bit? Sure. There there may be some uh, exceptions, but most most people the classic toxicity is in the parafovia. And the field loss is typically about two to six degrees eccentric from the foveal center. That's classic hydroxychloroquine toxicity. You'll see it on the OCT, and you'll see it in the visual field. It's a tight ring scotoma. That's why we do 10-2 fields. The 24-2 standard field is almost worthless. You can throw it in the wastebasket because there's only one test point within that entire zone, and all you get is maybe a central scotoma. But the 10-2 field will show you that it has points at, at approximately 1 degree, 3 degrees, 5 degrees, and it's the second and third circles, so to speak, of points that are, are the most critical ones for diagnosing this disease. With 10-2 fields, often people miss some uh, points way around the periphery. Those are, that's a common side of artifact. But that mid-peripheral zone is very specific and very characteristic. And that's what ophthalmologists lean, need to learn. Uh, you know, we were taught to, to recognize uh, homonymous field defects and arcuate scotomas. Uh, now there's another pattern that we need to recognize, which is the parafovial scotoma. Because even just one or two reliable spots in that parafovial zone could be early toxicity. You don't wait for a big, tight ring scotoma. You're looking for the first few spots in that critical zone, and those should trigger you either to repeat the field and see if it's consistent or get an OCT if you don't have one or get a multifocal ERG or see the patient back maybe in four to six months instead of a year and repeat the tests. The Most of the people, not well, probably not most, let's say many people that I've seen with severe toxicity were followed with fields by ophthalmologists or optometrists that just didn't pay attention to the field damage until it was very dense. One of the things that, that you that you point out, one, one, one of the parts of the guideline is, is that when we talk about hydroxychloroquine right. dosing uh, in terms of milligrams per kilogram, at as you say, it, it, it's not the milligrams per the patient's actual weight, uh, but their, their, their lean weight or uh, their ideal weight. Now, there are, are, are many ways in which to calculate right. the ideal weight. What, what do you recommend doing? Okay. Some of the formulas, like the NIH formula that, uh, that a recent article dealt with, are designed for heart disease and other things and are really do not tell you ideal weight. 
they're not geared to this. The simplest formula that's widely used around the world is as follows. For women, it's 100 pounds for five feet tall and five pounds for every inch over that. That's ideal weight. So a five foot two woman, woman, her ideal weight is 110 pounds. 100 pounds for five feet plus, plus two inches. Very simple formula. For men, it's 110 pounds for five feet plus five pounds an inch. Now, what does this mean in terms of dosing? The standard recommendation is 6.5 milligrams per kilogram, ideal weight. The standard dosing or most common dosing since the pills are 200 milligrams each is to tell people take, take two pills a day. That's 400 milligrams. Any woman shorter than five foot seven inches is being overdosed. And that means most women if they're taking two pills a day. And why do we worry about overdose? Because a high percentage of the toxic cases we find out are overdosed. It clearly accelerates the toxicity. And uh, that's, that's a good reason not to overdose. The uh, guidelines also outline having an initial baseline test and then following right. tests starting annually at, at, at five years. Right. Uh, but you, I, I, I know that you make the point that, uh, that there's still some, some benefit to doing testing even within this first five-year window. Right, depending on a couple of things. The, the risk of the drug for someone who has no risk factors, something else to get back to, uh, during the first five years is very low. Uh, probably, probably under 1%. In a year or so, we'll have some much better demographic uh, data. But it, it, it seems very low. After that, it starts going up at a pretty good clip. So technically, if you want to be cost-effective, you don't need to screen someone without added risk factors in the first five years. The problem with that is that some people have risk factors and that patients, as well as their rheumatologists, tend to forget. So the proper, proper recommendation is, yes, you're, you're healthy, your retina looks good, go ahead and start the drug, and we'll see you again in five years, and then start annual screening. Um, and that's great, uh, but some of the rheumatologists here in our area, which is a very risk-aversive part of the country, um, uh, once uh, they start on the drug, they're just as happy to have the patient start coming once a year, so it's on, it's on their books, and the patients don't forget. And so that's the other side of it, but uh, technically in terms of cost-effectiveness. Um, and, you know, risk, risk is an issue. If uh, the drug is excreted in the kidneys and by the liver, kidney disease is very common in lupus, which is one of the major uh, causes for taking, uh, taking Plaquenil. And if your excretory system is not working well, you're effectively taking a higher dose. So in... Uh, uh, patients with renal disease should probably be taking lower doses or be watched very closely because they're likely to be overdosed. Uh, pe people with macular disease. The main reason for screening is really just to check the macula. 
you know, the recommendations, which were written formally, said do a fundus exam every time you see the patients. Well, it's hard to tell an ophthalmologist don't do a fundus exam when someone comes into your office. But in fact, the fundus exam is nigh on to worthless for screening. And I mean that very seriously. It's worthless. If you're relying on a fundus exam, you're going to be blinding your patients. It's as simple as that. Because bullseye retinopathy, which is in all the textbooks, as the finding in this disease should be relegated to the history books. If you screen effectively, you should never see bullseye retinopathy again. And so if you're using fundus exams and waiting until you see a bullseye, you're only going to pick up people with very serious advanced toxicity. But that said, the screening exam is for a different purpose. You want to find out whether your patient has dry macular degeneration, has Stargardt disease, has bad diabetic retinopathy, um, any serious retinal disease is a relative contraindication to taking the drug. We don't know that retinal disease makes the toxicity worse or indeed that the toxicity may contribute to worsening the retinal disease, but it certainly seems a possibility. And the more damage there is in the retina, the harder it is going to be to screen because people will already have fetal loss, already have OCT changes, and so on. So it makes it very difficult to screen. So that's, that's really a big part of what the screening exam is for, is not necessarily to do fields, which probably will be okay, but you just want to have a baseline on the visual field if it's convenient to do, and you certainly want to take a good look at the fundus. And if you're uncertain about whether the changes would be a contraindication, then have the patient see a retina specialist. Mike, I'm a comprehensive ophthalmologist, but I, I, I frequently see patients in my own practice for a hydroxychloroquine toxicity screening. Right. And I, I suspect that, that a lot of listeners to the podcast are in the same position right. that, that I'm in. Do, do you have any recommendations that differ from or, or, or add to the... Academy's recommendations for Plaquenil follow-up. Absolutely, and that was really the point of that editorial, was to give kind of some practical advice that goes a little beyond the formal, uh, formal dicta of the recommendations. Um, do a good screening exam, just as I said, with a fundus exam. If it's in your office, you probably have a field machine and do a tin too. After five years or annually, if you want, and as a comprehensive ophthalmologist, you probably want to see many of your patients every year or two anyways. Every year they come back, do a good quality 10-2 field. My recommendation would be a white 10-2 CETA field and use the pattern deviation diagrams because the, the, the overall field uh, uh, diagram is, is very hard to see anything in the white, but the pattern deviation plots are very accurate. Or if you like red, do red. But learn what you're looking for and, and, and be sensitive to it. Um, once somebody's been on the drug for much more than five years or even five years, if you don't have an OCT, send them occasionally to get an OCT uh, with some retina guy in your area or, or gal in your area to uh, uh, keep tabs on the retina too. You may not want to do it every year if the fields are highly reliable and good and you can really judge and there's really no spots at all within that parafoveal zone. But even one or two clear-cut spots in that parafoveal zone, take them seriously. Retest. If you did white, you could retest with red. 
send them for an OCT, get a multifocal ERG if you're somewhere near a medical center. Um, because you want to pick this toxicity up early. You know, we can't prevent it. What we're trying to do is to pick it up early enough that there won't be any serious visual loss. And we're very capable of doing that now in uh, uh, ophthalmology and including general ophthalmology as long as you take your task seriously and know what you're looking for. Now, I, I, I emphasize that we're not trying to prevent toxicity. We can't, but we're trying to pick it up early. But you should think of your screening also as trying to keep people on the drug. In a certain sense, it's just as bad to say, oh, my God, there's one spot on the, on the, on the field. Stop the drug. Stop the drug. Because this is a great drug. It's non-toxic relatively at a systemic level. And the alternatives are steroids, methotrexate, and Imuran, whatever, bad drugs. That's one of the reasons why we recommend multiple tests, because if you have a borderline case, don't stop the drug. Get another test. Get something objective to go along with sub what's subjective. I always like to have two confirmatory tests, frankly, before I stop the drug, because it's, it's, it's a very good medicine. We owe it to our patients on both sides, not stop the drug when we don't have to, but not, uh, not miss early early toxicity when we can. Um, get the dose right. That's very key. And advise your rheumatologist. They don't always read the same literature. They should, but they don't. Uh, make sure your rheumatologist get feedback from you on what, what is an acceptable dose. And 98% of them will be very grateful and will happily uh, change and adjust the dosage of the patient, which greatly reduces the risk. Ask your patients if they, if they have kidney disease. Um, be aware of uh, all of these issues. It's a disease that should be largely largely preventable these days if, if we follow our patients. And uh, that's the challenge and, in a sense, the pleasure of screening these people is that you can really do a great deal of good. Mike, thank you very much. You're most welcome. Michael Marmor is professor of ophthalmology at Stanford University School of Medicine in Stanford, California. His editorial... Efficient and Effective Screening for Hydroxychloroquine Toxicity appears in the March 2013 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Here's some additional information about the new ASCRS Media Center. Almost all of the 2012 ASCRS ASOA meeting was audio and video recorded, and there are now more than 1,300 sessions featuring almost 1,000 speakers available online. You can view the general sessions, ASCRS paper sessions, symposia, films and posters, plus select courses and ASOA sessions on business management. It's essentially the entire meeting anytime you want. And it's all available through the new ASCRS Media Center. If you attended the meeting, your Media Center access is free. If you're a current ASCRS or ASOA member but didn't attend, you can still see everything that you missed for the member price of $199. If you're not an ASCRS member, you can still purchase the Media Center or better yet, join us and get the lower member price. 
To view the 2012 meeting through the Media Center, visit the ASCRS website at www.ascrs.org. If you're already a member, log in first and then click the Media Center link. If you're a guest, just click the Media Center link at the top of the page. From there, you can purchase the Chicago 2012 package or, better yet, join the ASCRS and receive the discounted member price. Ask questions of Dr. Marmor or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.